Grace Church. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and uh, it is my uh, pleasure to uh, bring God's word to you today from Romans. Um, but before we dive in, I just want to tell you about a very exciting time in my life. So it's the winter of 2005. I'm 12 years old. And I am absolutely obsessed and excited because Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith is coming out in May. <laughs> I am spending all of my time doing things related to Star Wars. I'm reading all the books that take place in between Episode Two and Three. I'm watching the little Clone Wars animated things on Cartoon Network. I'm playing the tie-in video game, uh, just doing everything. My friends were all so, so excited uh, because episode three is finally going to unlock the mystery that everyone's been wanting to find out since we found out who Darth Vader was. How does Anakin become Darth Vader? How does this hero in the first two episodes become one of the most iconic villains of all time? So. Winter goes through, coming into spring, and uh, episode three comes out on May 19th, which is a Thursday. So my mother, being the great mom that she is, calls into my school and says I'm sick. It <laughs> takes me to the movie theater. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. And uh, we go in, and everyone is so excited. People are dressed up as stormtroopers, as uh, all sorts of different things. Half the people have lightsabers, they're just waving around. Uh, so we go into the theater and we sit down, we sit down through you know, the 20 so minutes of uh, previews. And we're just sitting there and the screen goes black. And that's when you hear it. The Star Wars theme comes on and the credits, the opening credits start rolling down. And this is the first time I'd ever experienced this at a movie theater. But rather than everyone being quiet and just starting to watch, people start standing up, they start clapping, they start shouting and whistling. People are waving those glowing lightsabers around. <laughs> Thank you, Paul Parisi. <laughs> so everyone is, is just so excited. People have been waiting either decades or years. They're finally seeing this. And because they are so excited, they are so astounded by what's coming, they just can't help themselves. They just break out into uh, praise, into to clapping, into this just uproarious joy uh, just comes upon everybody in that movie theater. And what we're going to see here in this passage of Romans is this is the exact same thing that happens to Paul. He has gone through the last 11 chapters of Romans, and he has laid out in detail the mysteries of the gospel, how Jesus Christ became a man and died for our sins, bringing justification and life. And just like all of those nerds, myself included, cannot contain his joy, uh, his pen erupts with praise 
to God, glorifying him uh, in just incredible excitement about the God who has accomplished these things. And so as we dive into Romans, I think it's only appropriate. Um, if Star Wars can get a lot of love, I think God can as well. So if you'll just stand with me as we read this passage of Romans, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Just pray for us as well. You could be seated now if you'd like. <laughs> Lord, uh, just thank you so much. Um, Lord, just for the privilege of sharing your word with your people, Lord. And God, that you are the most exciting being in existence. That you are the most exciting thing we can put our hearts on, uh, that we can turn our attention to, that we can tune our affections to, Lord. And I just pray, God, that as Paul uh, couldn't contain his joy, couldn't contain his wonder. I pray, Lord, that uh, each and every person here, myself included, would feel that wonder, would feel that joy, and just that adoration of who you are, Lord, and how uh, indescribably majestic you are. So, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would touch us and be with us today. In Christ's name, amen. Now, as we dive in, as always, it's important to just set up the context. Of course, we've been going through uh, Romans for the last several months. And for this passage in particular, this is taking place right at the end of Romans 11. And really, the immediate context that is bringing this up is what Paul has talked about in Romans 9 through 11. So in these chapters, uh, Paul has really tried to explain some of the the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith, really trying to get out and trace some of the, the kind of hardest topics to understand uh, within the gospel. So chapter 9, we find that counter to what we as humans might do, God's choice of those to whom he places affections has nothing to, good, nothing to do with their goodness or their inherent worth, anything like that. He merely chooses them out of his grace and good pleasure, the doctrine of election. Moving into chapter 10, we see that Paul explains how does this actually become effective in life? How does one uh, uh, see this work out? And God mysteriously chooses the very human activity of speaking words, of communicating truth verbally through the preaching of his word. This is how he makes this uh, election active and real in the lives of people through preaching. And finally, in chapter 11, we come to a major question that uh, any Jewish reader of the book may have. Well, if God is bringing in the Gentiles, if most of uh, ethnic Israel has rejected the gospel, does that mean that God has broken his promises, that he's not going to make good on his promise to Israel to save? And we find that Paul says, by no means. God is going to uh, be good on his promises to Israel, 
But the way he's doing it, again, is something that we wouldn't expect. The way that he is going to bring salvation to all of ethnic Israel is first by their rejection of his son. It's through their rejection that God is now going to bring in the full number of the Gentiles, that the gospel goes out to the nations, that all nation, tribe, tongue, and people are able to participate in his promises. And by virtue of that, That is going to cause ethnic Israel to become jealous. That's going to become the mechanism by which they themselves come to accept the gospel. And again, as Paul says in chapter 11, through this, all Israel will be saved. So this is the the context. These mysteries are uh, the background of why Paul is just exploding in this praise here. And before we go on, I think it's also important just to place this in the whole context of the book as well. Because you see chapters 1 through 11, uh, 32, this really forms the doctrinal content of the book of Romans. Um, Of course, there's practical bits in there as well. But Paul spends this first 11 chapters really explaining the truths of the gospel, how these different things function. And then after this passage in chapters 12 through 16, Paul is really going to apply that to the Christian life. In light of the goodness and the grace of God, how is it that we now respond to his graciousness? How do we live a Christian life? And so this passage is sandwiched right in between those two sections, doctrine and application. And so it acts as the hinge of the book. It acts as the centerpiece And the centerpiece is praise to God. It's all about God, praising him for who he is and what he has done. And if we look at this passage, um, the slides could appear. There we go. Well, back one slide. (laughs) Thank you. so this uh, passage, uh, it's, it's very much, it's almost like a, a song, a hymn um, to God, and it can be broken down rather neatly. It's nine lines of, uh, of material, um, and Paul basically does three things. The first section, verse 33, he makes three exclamations about God. He makes three statements about the Lord. In verses 34 through 35, he then asks three rhetorical questions about God. And then finally, in uh, verse 36, uh, Paul makes three prepositional statements or three prepositions about God. So to catch us all up on the English language, prepositions are just those words like to, for, um, through, uh, words that relate nouns in a sentence to other things. I think it'll become more clear as we jump in, but just to keep that in your mind. Uh, And I wish I could have come up with something pithier, but (laughs) my creativity escaped me. Anyways, we will first now jump into these three exclamations about God. So verse 33. And the first exclamation that Paul makes here is a statement of the depth of three of God's attributes. These are the depths of his riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge. And now, Paul, in choosing these three attributes, he's being intentional. Uh, He could have picked any number of God's attributes, his 
goodness, his mercy, his justice. Uh, in Ephesians 3, 18 through 19, he talks about the length, height, and depth of God's love. So we know that all of God's attributes are deep things, but he specifically wants to highlight these three. And the reason for it is that these three correspond to the intricacies of his plan of redemption through election, through the preaching of the gospel, through the salvation of Israel. And so the first of these, these riches, uh, Paul wants to highlight the depths of his riches. This is to say that God is in possession of all things, and as such he can dispense and give to anyone he so chooses uh, the goodness of his riches. And we see elsewhere in Romans even further content of these riches. We see in uh, Romans 2.4, Paul talks about the riches of his kindness. In 9.23, he talks about the riches of his glory. So uh, God is abundant in these good things. And so Paul is highlighting that he has these riches, and as the person who owns them, he is able to give them to those whom he will. Secondly, he highlights God's wisdom, which we can see in this plan of redemption that God has laid out this master plan, that he chooses those whom he will uh, place his uh, affection upon. And in fulfilling that plan, he uses, again, the very human method of preaching the gospel. And in that wisdom, he is also bringing about the salvation of ethnic Israel, fulfilling his promises to them. And finally, complementing that is his knowledge. God has a comprehensive knowledge of all things, past, present, future, possible. And by virtue of this knowledge, he is able to execute this redemptive plan. There's no element that he is unaware of. There's no wrench that can be thrown into his plan. God has full knowledge of all things. And so that allows him to go about accomplishing his redemptive task. And so these are the three attributes that Paul talks about, and he says that they are deep. He talks about the depth of these things. He's celebrating their depth. And just to give you a picture of what he's getting at, the deepest point in the ocean is what's called the Mariana Trench. It's about 200 miles off the coast of the Philippines, and it goes down, it's basically like an underwater canyon. Uh, it goes down about seven miles, um, I think only one or two submarines have ever gotten to that depth. Um, but it's the deepest point in the ocean. You could just lift Mount Everest, take it from the Himalayas, throw it down the trench, and there would still be a mile of water between the peak of Mount Everest and uh, the surface. That's how deep the Mariana Trench is. The deepest, deepest thing we can imagine or see. What Paul is saying is that these attributes of God, his riches, wisdom, and knowledge, that is even deeper than the Mariana Trench. We could take every single mountain on earth, stack them all together, chuck them in the trench of God's, uh, the depth of God's attributes, and we would never even know that they were in there. We would never be able to see the peaks of any of those mountains. That is how deep these things are. And, and Paul is drawing attention, celebrating this incredible depth of God's attributes. So this is the first exclamation he makes, that these things are so indescribably deep. 
The next exclamation that he makes is that the judgments of God are unsearchable. What he's speaking of here is that the decisions God makes are impossible to fully grasp. It's not something that we can fully comprehend. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, who would have thought that God's way, well, first, who would have thought that God would even have mercy on sinners, being as just and holy as he is? And then who would think that if he's going to save sinners, he would do so by incarnating his son and sending him to be killed to take the wrath of God upon himself? Or who would think counterintuitively that Israel's rejection of the gospel would ultimately lead to their full salvation? These are things that we can't fully grasp. None of us would be able to anticipate any of this. And we see examples even in scripture of people just uh, flabbergasted at the decisions God makes. Think of the disciples responding to Jesus. Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration and reminds them, hey guys, I'm going to die and on the third day we rise again. And Peter goes to him and says, no, 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 this will never happen. Absolutely not. And Jesus rebukes him for that. Uh, the disciples couldn't even imagine that the plan of God's Messiah would involve his death and resurrection. And that same bewilderment is a bewilderment that we all have at the decisions of God. We cannot imagine or comprehend or anticipate the decisions he makes. They're so glorious, so above our ability to comprehend. And this is complemented then by the last exclamation he makes, which is that the ways of God are inscrutable. So we don't usually say things are inscrutable in common language. That just means that they're incomprehensible. There's something that we can't understand. And just like we cannot search out, fully grasp or understand the uh, judgments of God, so too God's ways, the, the manner in which God acts, uh, the full comprehension of his being is something that is beyond us human beings. It is not something that we ourselves can accomplish. I think a great uh, quote explaining this is from a church father named Origen. He lived in the mid-200s and uh, one of the great uh, theologians of the church. And in commenting on this passage, he had this to say. Paul did not say that God's judgments were hard to search out, but that they could not be searched out at all. He did not say that God's ways were hard to find out, but that they were impossible to find out. For however far one may advance in the search and make progress through an increasingly earnest study, even when aided and enlightened in the mind by God's grace, he will never be able to reach the final goal of his inquiries. God is an inexhaustible depth of mystery, and no matter how long you've been a Christian, if you go to to seminary, if you spend your whole life studying, you are never even going to scratch the surface of who God is, scratch the surface of his wisdom and his majesty. That is how profoundly mysterious and wonderful God is. And so Paul, in his praise, he is uh, doing this to highlight the immense gravity of who God is. He's explained this incredible counterintuitive plan of salvation that God has done. And he's highlighting that God is wholly other from us. 
he is entirely different, on a different plane, a different scale entirely. And this wells up in him into praise that only God can do this. As God himself says in Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is ultimately incomprehensible to us in the final analysis. Of course, we can understand things about God. We can know God to an extent. Otherwise, there'd be no purpose in the Bible or in preaching. But God will always be beyond us. He will always be beyond our ability to fully plumb the depths of. And the beauty of that is that when we are with him, we can spend eternity plumbing those eternal depths of God, always increasing in knowledge, always increasing in love and joy, because God is uh, never-ending. We can never be exhausted of God. And so these are the three exclamations that Paul makes, highlighting the immense gravity of this. And so now, transitioning from these exclamations, Paul is now going to basically ask three rhetorical questions that sort of go along with this. And these rhetorical questions are actually Old Testament quotations. So Paul isn't just asking these questions, he's bringing in scripture and using the context of those scriptures to make his point. So the first two questions here for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, those come from Isaiah uh, 40.13. And then the last question, or who he has given a gift to that he might be repaid, this is a quotation from Job 41.11. So we'll just treat the first two questions together, just kind of explain the context, and then we'll go to the Job quotation. And so jumping into Isaiah, because one thing to keep in mind whenever a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, they're not just throwing a quote in there willy-nilly. They're bringing in the context. They're bringing in the whole um, application of what that meant in its time to uh, their present text. That's why they're bringing it in. And so in Isaiah 40, we find a transition in uh, the, Isaiah, uh, the text of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah really hammer Israel pretty hard. Um, uh, Isaiah uh, basically is taking Israel to court and saying, you have failed to live up to your obligations of the covenant. And because of this, the judgment of God is coming. And then as we uh, transition further, you get this historical narrative of um, the Assyrians uh, attacking Jerusalem and God's deliverance. So this is the, the first part of this book. But then in chapter 40, there is a transition, not... Uh, from condemnation, but now to comfort. In fact, the chapter begins with uh, verse 41, excuse me, verse one, uh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God is now transitioning from uh, charging Israel with their failure to live up to the covenant and is now speaking future and present comfort to them that despite this fact, despite their sin, he is going to deliver them. He is going to bring about a new heavens and new earth as we see in the very end of the book. And so this part of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, that is the context. 
That is the stage of this part of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 40, uh, it transitions for the first few verses talking about comfort to then doing essentially what Paul is doing here, exalting God for his majesty, exalting him for the manner in which he is uh, indescribable, that his ways are higher uh, than our ways. And so this first question for who has known the mind of the Lord, and this is the answer to all the rhetorical questions, is no one. No one has known the mind of the Lord. There's absolutely no one who can fully comprehend God. And for Israel, this is in the context of uh, trying to understand how God would save them despite the fact that they have failed to obey the covenant, how God is going to save them from the coming Babylonian exile. And here, Paul, following chapter 11, is uh, talking about uh, just the incredible majesty of the fact God is going to save all Israel now, not just from the Babylonian captivity, but from their captivity to sin, their captivity to rejection of the gospel. And so this rhetorical question, no one is known to the mind of the Lord. No one can approach uh, God. No one can understand him. And so in a kind of neat poetic fashion, uh, Paul is using this rhetorical question to highlight one of those attributes that he had talked about in verse 33. So here he is relating knowing the mind of the Lord to the depth of his knowledge. No one can know the mind of the Lord because of the depth of his knowledge. So kind of in reverse order, this is what Paul is going to be doing. Uh, kind of a nice, uh, pretty poetic thing. And so this is the first rhetorical question. Again, no one has known the mind of the Lord. Secondly, the second question is, who has been his counselor? Who has offered God advice? Who has come to him and said, hey God, I've got a great idea for you. Again, the answer is no one. God in his wisdom, so we're seeing the correspondence here, uh, he knows all things. He knows already the best, most glorious course of action. So there is no one who can offer him advice. There's no one who can supplement his wisdom or understanding to bring about a better outcome. God already has the wisdom to bring about the best outcome in the most glorious way. And so thinking of that, it's sort of absurd to imagine that someone could offer advice to God. So as an example, Pastor Toby is a chemical engineer I am not a chemical engineer. <laughs> Imagine if I were to go into his workplace and try to offer him advice about industrial chemicals. To give you some context, the last time I talked to him about that, I asked if he were to jump in a vat of chemicals if he thinks he'd get a superpower. <laughs> so my advice doesn't go very far. <laughs> And in that same way, that same absurdity applies to thinking that someone could counsel God. Again, God has all the details. God has all the knowledge, all the wisdom. There's no one who can be his counselor. So again, this corresponds in verse 33 to his attribute of wisdom. And then now in the final uh, rhetorical question, Paul is now drawing from Job, uh, Job uh, 41, 
11. And so jumping into Job, just trying to explain the context there. So Job as a book uh, is a, a piece of wisdom literature that tries to help uh, people understand unexplained or undeserved suffering. So the story of Job, uh, Job is a godly, upright man. Uh, he worships the Lord. He uh, does acts of righteousness. And Satan basically goes to God and says, hey, I really think the only reason why Job is doing this is because you bless him. So if we take away his blessings, if we take away the goodness you've given him, guaranteed he's going to curse you to your face. And so first couple chapters of Job, you see things start being taken away from Job. You see his livestock, his wealth gets taken from him. His family, with the exception of his wife, are taken from him. And finally, his physical health is taken. He's covered in boils. Um, he's sick and has nothing. And the rest of the chapters of Job, going up until chapter 38, are Job's conversation with his friends. Uh, Job is basically saying, I'm innocent. I've done nothing to deserve this suffering, which is true. He has not done. We know that there's something going on in the spiritual realm between God and Satan, and that Job has done nothing to deserve the suffering. But his friends, <laughs> if you could call them that, uh, spend the next uh, about 30 or so chapters berating him, explaining, no, 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 Job, the reason why you're experiencing this suffering is because you must have done something wrong. Behind this veneer of righteousness, there's really a pretty ugly person. And so whatever has befallen you, whatever befalls anyone in life, it's really coming to them anyways. And throughout this, throughout this dialogue, uh, Job not only, again, protests that he's innocent, but says, I want to bring my case to God. I want to show him, God, I am innocent. Um, you guys are not helping me. I want to bring my case directly to the Lord. And rather dramatically and surprisingly, God actually does appear in chapter 38. God appears in a whirlwind and speaks to Job. But rather than give an answer to Job's question, why am I suffering if I'm innocent? Uh, God doesn't go and say, well, you see, you know, a couple days ago, me and Satan were talking and we kind of arranged this thing. Uh, he basically completely sidetracks that. He doesn't answer Job's question at all, but rather points to the fact that Job, in trying to understand, trying to wrestle an answer from God, is hopelessly out of his league, hopelessly um, ignorant of the ways of God and how God works in the world. And he doesn't do this to be cruel. He doesn't do this to, to rub salt in the wound, but he does it to transition what Job is looking for, looking for a specific answer, I'm suffering because A, B, and C, to simply trusting in this majestic God who despite his mystery is ultimately for him. And so moving through chapter 38 to 41, uh, God explains to Job how he has created all things and asks Job, you know, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Were you there when I took care of the animals? Were you there when I did such and such. And in chapter 41, God tells Job about this great beast, Leviathan. Not terribly important to know what Leviathan is, but uh, for the purposes of this, just think of a great 
uh, monstrous beast. And God basically says to Job, you know, there's this great terrible beast. Are you someone who could go up and put hooks in its mouth? Could you drag it out of the water? Could you force it to bargain with you? Could you overpower this beast? These rhetorical questions, the answer is no. There's no way that Job could do that. And so God says in uh, 41.10, no one is so fierce that he dare stirs him up, speaking of Leviathan. And in light of that, he says, who then is he who can stand before me? You see, Leviathan is just as much a creature of God as Job. And if Job is not fierce enough, strong enough, wise enough to challenge Leviathan, who is he to challenge God himself? The one who could easily overpower, easily do away with Leviathan. And so speaking to Job, we now get to this quotation. And it's a little bit different than the quotation in Romans. And there's some various reasons for that. Partially is just the Greek versus the Hebrew that Paul is using, but we can talk about that at a later time. But he says to Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What God is saying here to Job in the context is that Leviathan is a creature that belongs to me, and you, Job, are also a creature that belongs to me. There's no one who has given me anything that I don't already own. I own the whole of heaven. I own the whole of reality. And so I don't actually owe you anything, Job. I don't owe anyone anything because I am the Lord of everything. But as we see as the book progresses, it's true that God doesn't owe anyone anything. He doesn't owe Job an answer. He doesn't owe Job uh, recompense, anything like that. But yet in his mercy, in his goodness, in his riches and abundance, God is not a miser, but is gracious and giving. And so he restores Job. And he even just the fact that he brings his very presence into the situation, we see that God is gracious and rich in giving to Job. And so this is the same idea that Paul, in his quotation, is using. He's basically saying, again, that who owes anything, uh, who has made God a debtor, essentially? Who is it that lords over God such that he owes them something? No one. No one does that. No one can do that. And so God is not obligated to do anything for anyone. But despite the fact he doesn't have an obligation to do so, he is so gracious and rich that he gives to those uh, who have nothing, he gives them everything. He gives them these depths of riches. And we see the depths of those riches again played out through the whole book of Romans, that God would give graciously to his people, that he would rescue them from their sin. All of mercy, nothing owed to people, but again, purely from the riches and the graciousness of God. And so this is what Paul is talking about. God owes no one anything, but yet in his riches, he gives people everything. And again, you can see this corresponds to that uh, 
attribute of his riches. And so now we come to the end of these three rhetorical questions, highlighting and emphasizing the first of his exclamations. And now Paul is bringing this to the crescendo point, to the high point of this hymn, this praise to God. And so he makes, he uses three prepositions, so again, those words that relate nouns to other things, to make a, a really profound statement about God's relation to reality. So uh, the things that are being related here in the sentence are God and all things. And so we see verse 36, for from him, preposition from, through him, and to him, are all things. And so, very quickly, I want to go through the significance of this. So the first thing that Paul says is that from God are all things. We know from Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that God is the source and origin of all things that exist. There's not some rival creator there's not someone else making things in some pocket dimension. Everything comes from God. He is the source of all things. Second preposition is not only that God is the source of things, but it's through God that all things are made. We see in Genesis 1-3 that God creates through his word. And that word is Jesus Christ. We see that in John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That God, uh, through the agency of his Son, creates all things. That this is the mechanism by which reality is created. He doesn't create a machine and wind it up and let it go. God is intimately involved in the creation of all things. From the budding of a flower to the combustion of stars to a baby in the womb, God is intimately involved. It is through him that these things are created. And finally, Paul directs us to the fact that not only is it from God and through God that are all things, but to God, that God is the goal that all of reality is hurtling towards. It sounds a little bit weird, but the fact of Scripture is, is that God is the ultimate goal of reality. There's not some secondary good that we are pointed to. It's not, you know, getting into heaven, that's not the goal. It's not living a good life here, that's not the goal. It's being with God. It is uh, cherishing him and loving him and being in relationship with him that is the goal, not only of us as human beings, but the whole of created reality that God is making all things new, bringing all things to himself. And this is something that we feel inwardly, that we can even instinctively understand. Uh, St. Augustine, a great church father, uh, said in his confessions, You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you've made us and drawn ourselves to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We instinctively understand that God is the only thing that can truly satisfy, the only thing that can truly bring us uh, rest and joy. God is the, the sun in the center 
of our solar system that we are drawn to, that we are moving to. And that ultimate picture, uh, that joy uh, that we'll see in the new heavens and the new earth is from Revelations 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God is the goal, the ultimate thing that all of reality is pointing to. And so in light of this, in light of all that Paul has said, the majesty and inscrutability of his ways, the incredible uh, uh, wisdom that he displays in the plans that he makes um, and the decisions that he executes, there's really only one thing left for Paul to say at the end of this, and this is to ascribe glory to God into perpetuity, that all glory be to God through eternity. And so as the band uh, comes up and we transition to uh, worship in song and worship in communion, um, I just pray that you would feel that same awe at God, that God is the end-all, be-all of existence, that there is nothing and no one that compares to him, and that you would rejoice in worshiping this great God just as Paul rejoiced here in Romans.